In a world where Republicans and Democrats work together, things might actually get done. Every day in Charlotte, North Carolina, two council members deal with the city's most pressing issues, like potholes. They don't follow the rules, they make them. Those two council members are Larkin Eggleston and Tarek Bakari, and we join them now for another episode of R&D in the QC. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? Episode 18. We got our first look at the manager's proposed budget. We talk about the new Intergovernmental Relations Committee, and we have special guest, Congresswoman Alma Adams. Eighteen of R and D. It's super early right now, Larkin. It is. We six twenty. Six twenty in the PM. And we have just found out about the fiscal year twenty nineteen budget. There was every media outlet in the city, maybe in the state, was there. Mm. You could cut the tension with a knife, and it per- rightfully so. They didn't give us a, any of us a chance to speak. <laughs> I think that was probably smart. I had set the over under at sixty minutes, and I think we squeaked in uh, under. Yeah. Which is even still remarkable, uh, but the mayor had made it clear this was this was a time for us to uh, receive information from the manager, and we've now got several weeks to kind of gnaw into this thing and and pick it apart and see what we like, what we don't like. Um, but at first glance, I'm feeling pretty good about our starting point. So walk everybody through kind of what you saw, how we how it was presented to us, and what you saw. I'll. I'll go high level first and say the questions I'm anticipating people asking me tomorrow if they weren't here, weren't watching, um, or or don't read the bullet points on a local media outlet, $50 million affordable housing bond. Mm. That's the number one question I've been getting leading up to this budget rollout is, are you going to do a bigger housing, affordable housing bond? We've, a lot of us have used the number $50 million. The mayor's put it out there um, tonight officially in the proposed budget. And, and I will preface all of Tark and I's discussion with this is the manager's proposed budget. There it's, will, now our, it's in our hands yes, now. Right? It will inevitably be uh, tweaked a little. But um, so, yes, yeah, so he has proposed a $50 million affordable housing bond. Uh, if you want, we can dig into later uh, on this episode or later in another episode um, how all of this squares. It is a balanced budget. Um, the other thing that I got asked a couple times, even just today, knowing that this budget rollout was coming, was is there going to be a tax increase? And in this proposed budget, there is a one cent property tax increase, which for a $100,000 home means $10 a year. For a $250,000 home, $25 a year. So we're talking about a dollar or two a month um, for most homeowners in a property tax increase. And then the thing that I know was at the top of your list, and I know you're going to unpack this more, um, but at a high level, we've got a, a 6.5% or so um, salary increase for police officers, along with a litany of other compensation improvements for our police officers. So I think we've got to get away from just talking about salary because you know, my salary in the private sector, or even for that matter, my salary here in the public sector is not just a salary. It's it's salary. It's you talk about health insurance, talk about retirement, things like that. Um, and so this addresses a lot of those for our first responders. And I know that was one of the things you were looking to make sure was in there. Yeah. So let, let, let me jump up to the highest level, right? So when they they, they kind of open the stage here to say, we have proposed a $2.6 billion budget. And of that, 
693 millions in the general fund. So they started walking us through. First of all, we worked really hard and we found 13.7 million in savings uh, going from kind of reevaluating some mandatory costs that we take savings across departments, which is the biggest 8.6 million. And we haven't I, seen what those are yet. I know you want to see yeah. those details and what that is. And then consolidating some services for 1.4 million. So um, this is and represents a 3.7% budget increase across the board. Um, but he kind of broke out for us, walking us up from 18 to this 2019 proposed budget. It's only 2.6 when you consider kind of that savings plus additional expansion they've done. And then there's an additional 1% for what they want to do for police. So, um, so that's kind of at the, the highest level. Uh, I'll tell you, here's what I think I liked. I think I liked what I saw for the police officers, but I think the devil's going to be in the details. I saw one of our officers who, uh, who protects us down there in these kind of meetings on my way up, and I just grabbed him. I said, what was your gut reaction? And we kind of went back and forth, and I said, well, here's what I saw. New recruits are going to get paid 7 to 17% more, depending on if they have a four-year degree. Um, there's going to be a 6.5% increase for all employees, all, all C, uh, p- police uh, officers in their next merit increase. And it could be up to 18%, depending on where your levels are, and then some other voluntary things that you can do. And there's over $1,000 a year they're going to start adding and matching into retirement health accounts. So I, I like some of the sounds of it, but the problem is the devil's in the details. And I got to go through this this big binder they gave us and hopefully answer the one question that the, at the end, the officer on my way up said to me, which is, I, I think I liked it, but like he was kind of not saying it. And I, I, it made sense to me to think of it as, what does that mean for me? Like yeah. it, I'm officer X, I'm at level one, I'm at level eight, I'm at level 13. How, what, what do I get? So that's the question I need to answer to make sure I really like this one. Well, and to be fair, that's what all of our constituents are going to ask. Right. What, what does this do for my part of the city? What does this do for my community? And I think, you know, I think most people in our community want what's good for the, the greater um, population and, and the greater community. But um, I do think it looks like the manager found ways to um, carve out some additional money for, for projects in District 6 and 7. Um, there's funding for a bike program that has to date uh, been unfunded. There's more. We're putting our money where our mouth is, more on sidewalks, which I know are a priority for a lot of folks. There's a lot of there's a lot of little things in this budget that I really like too. And so I think that, and again, having not seen yet where these cuts were made, and that's going to be really important to me and I think all of us, uh, depending on what those are um, and how drastic they are, but. I think what the manager did is, is what he should have done. He has spent the last, I guess, five months now um, talking with us in the retreat. We, we dug in deep, but we, we all meet with him monthly, individually. And he's he's cobbled together what we've said collectively are our priorities and said, all right, then if those are our priorities, we're going to cut some money over here and we're going to put it towards the things you've spent five months telling me matter to you. Yeah. And so that's really what I was seeing in his budget was, a reflection of our values as, as 12 individual council members and a mayor um, and the things that we've been espousing. So, um, again, at first glance, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. I just need to see where those cuts are because, you know, there could be something that I or you or any other council member views is mm-hmm. really critical to the operations of the city and to, to doing right by our constituents because, you, you know, you don't just cut millions of dollars and it, and it doesn't matter at all. I mean, it, it was there in the first place for a reason. So we want to make sure that it, on balance, 
the things we're, we're putting money towards outweigh the things we're taking money from. But so, so I think it's a good start. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So I, I told you what I like. I think I like. Let me tell you, and I think we should have maybe ask the, some of the leaders of the uh, Fraternal Order of Police and the, and the uh, fire union guys, to uh, they've expressed interest in coming on the pod. Love to have them on to tell us their unfettered view of what they saw. Um, so I think I like that, but I need to drill into if it. If they're comfortable doing that. It, no, they asked. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's, let me tell you what I love. I love the fact that there's another $5 million for the South Park CNIP. My district really needs capital investment. And it, it, it's easy for someone at a glance who isn't following this stuff closely to look at that and say, look, South Park doesn't need any help right now. But the reality is, you know, we are getting less than 2% of this overall 800 and plus million dollar community investment plan money that's in that's 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 rolling through uh, the multi-year city uh, investment. And we have a lot of growth and we are falling way behind in infrastructure. This is a relatively small amount on the grand scale of things. And I would like to see more. I'm going to fight for more, but we really need that to make sure that we are able to continue to do our part in paying in the 25% of the, the property tax basis that this city collects to make sure that all of our bo boats in East and West and North Charlotte continue to rise. And we're not 10 or 15 years from now looking for, for uh, you know help because we're in bad shape. And I'll, and I'll surprise you by underscoring your point and then agreeing with you that wow, nice. I, think, I think a lot of people would drive through District 6 and 7 and perceive um, a lot of what's going on as, as being investment. And it is. It's, it's private investment. And so they... You know, you, you visualize it, it visualizes very much the same as public investment. But um, so I, I do think we've got to make sure that there is a lot of private investment going on in your district. And that's a, a reason that I would argue that other districts. But when you screech public. to a halt with congestion or when you drive down Fairview you and you have, see there's years and years of un, underfunded water piping. Right. That's know, what I was going to say. If, you, like, if we don't make sure that the infrastructure keeps up with that private investment, yeah. then that private investment halts. Yep. And so, uh, you know, I'll. I'll, I'll have you back on that. So let me tell you something I kind of liked, but maybe didn't like so much. That surprisingly. doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, I don't know. I need to get into the details. So you, you mentioned earlier, $50 million in housing bonds, right? This is record-breaking for, for, for Charlotte. It's a, and he, then he went further to actually say our investment in 19 would actually be more like $73 million because affordable housing would have $52.5 million, the housing grant program of $13.2 million. Which another, some of those dollars were coming from federal Yeah, ex yeah but, but federal de deployed nonetheless. $7.6 million from an innovative housing fund. So here's what I love the fact that we were going to give more. $2.7 million to a way home. Anyone who listens to the show knows what they do. I met with them again today. They are pushing the envelope and creative non-real estate-based solutions there. Um, but, you know, I, I'll tell you, I, um, I feel like dumping that amount of money, back, going back to what I've said multiple times, at, at an old school way of thinking, at the property, at the, at the real estate itself, as kind of this middleman, middle area of solving affordable housing, that is not, I feel like it's not even going to make a dent. It's not even going to be a pebble thrown in the ocean at where we've really identified the problem, 30% AMI and below. And as I've, this is homeless or near homeless. And as I've become and evolving over the weeks, you know, it's starting, I'm starting to think that we don't have an affordable housing crisis right now. I'm starting to think that we have a social service crisis. You can't build 30% AMI units and below 
on a scale that what we need, 19,400 gap. You need to do like a way home does and help these homeless and near homeless folks with, with social services and wraparounds and then stipends and help to kind of bridge the gap of, uh, of, of the, the rents that they can't afford. And they have a 77% success rate after 18 months of them being able to afford affordable. So while affordable housing is a problem and we need to keep in that gap of 35 to 50% AMI that's there, I think we need to take a serious look and have a serious conversation with our partners at County Commission who own social services to get involved and help us in a more material way. So I'll accept your premise that housing bonds will not be the silver bullet solution to affordable housing. So I don't, I don't think they will either. But there are a lot of people that are feeling real pain right now as it relates to their ability to afford housing in this community. And so this $50 million, I think, will make it. It will be more than a pebble in the, in the ocean or whatever your analogy was. I think it will make a dent. It'll make a hell of a lot bigger dent than $15 million bonds have in the past. And, and I think we continue to do what we can now to help the people that need help now while we continue to look for other ways to tackle this problem. But how is that going to solve? I mean, I hear you. And look, it, well, and doing good is good. But but the majority of that money is going to create 50 to 80% AMI units. Well, but we also looked at tonight things like a, a program that I know uh, Dr. Harlow and I and others have talked about, which is trying to invest in ways to make sure that seniors can age in place and mm. aren't displaced. That's a way that we tackle the growing need for affordable housing is letting people stay where they are and afford it. Uh, we talked about investment in programs with CPCC and Goodwill and CMS that are going to help um, create more a better workforce pipeline. That's your argument of supply side, um, exactly, or, or, or demand demand side. Yep. I'm sorry, demand side um, of the housing crisis. So I mean, there are other things in this budget that invest in that demand side side that you're talking about, ability to keep people in place, which then does not mean we have to build a unit for them somewhere else. Um, so I think we are tackling this from multiple angles. And I think that, that this demonstrates, you know, fair or unfair, the, the public is looking at us taking a real stab at this problem. And that's, again, I boiled it down earlier. What are the headlines? It's going to be, well, one cent tax increase, the police get this, and $50 million housing bond. This is a clear demonstration of this being a priority for the city and for the city council. And we're going to, we're, we've got a meeting scheduled, I think, in two weeks with a lot of the, the heavy hitters from the private sector, and they're coming to the table too to say, you've shown that this is a priority for you. You've, you've gone out on a limb and, and made this your, your, top, um, your top target in, to tackle in this budget, and we're gonna come to the table and we're gonna help. Do you think there's enough inspiration in that, not the dollar amount, but us showing a vision for how that, that dollar amount can be deployed to actually solve the problem, to inspire them to, to, to put money in? Yes. Really? I, I think the private sector has been working. I, I, I've been led to believe, and again, it, it will come out as to what that's going to be, their commitment, but in just a week or two. But I, I think the private sector has been kind of circling the wagons um, on that side of, of town and saying, if the city's going to actually make a significant investment and a significant um, improvement in their efforts towards this problem, then we need to be part of that solution too. And I think that they're going to come to the table in a, in a I, meaningful way. I need to see, I, I guess my, the punchline on this one is, I need to see what the plan is for that $50 million. That's not something we saw tonight. Hopefully it's in our in our book that we just got. But you know, again, if because if you do all the math and the storyline that we've been on this journey for the last couple months, 
If we do all the 9% deals we can over the next two years with this bond cycle, that's 10 million bucks and several hundred units of which maybe a little over 100 are in that area of greatest need. Okay, so then what do you do? 4% deals, which don't at all, hardly at all address that need. I love that there's 2.7 million for a way home in the innovative housing fund, but that's not even part of the 50 million. That's not even part of that. So what are you gonna do with the additional 40 million that actually gets directed at the right area? I think that's the question that, that I need answered to see where I'm at there. Because well, I, I want a solution. I just, I, throwing money at it is not is not my idea of a solution. I know we got one more topic we want to cover before yep. we go into our interview with the Congresswoman. But, um, you know, I don't think that we're going to see in this book the deployment of all $50 million. It's, obviously, we don't have that planned out. I think part of the, the Housing Trust Fund is having that money available so that when an opportunity presents itself, we can jump on it and... Um, and so no, that's not going to be in there. And yeah, but right. we've we've got to have we've got to have the reserves to say that we're not going to miss opportunities when opportunities present themselves. Let me let me say one last thing on this topic because there's one thing I hated, I absolutely hated. I'm sure you can guess what it is: the one cent property tax increase. And while one cent, when you look at it, okay, you know that's if you have a hundred thousand dollar house, ten bucks a year, right? Doesn't seem that much. We already uh, you know have some critiques, especially. When you look at the map in where property values are highest, right? My district it will be disproportionately impacted by this. One, so I, I, I just all but, I'd say is two, that a two million dollar house on Quail Hollow Golf Course is going to be a two hundred dollar tax bill. Yeah, but what about two hundred and fifty, three hundred and fifty thousand dollar houses throughout there? Twenty five, thirty five dollars. Right, but th- it's not, it, it's like oh, okay. Here's the, you're already cutting a big check. This is how this is how the kind of process of every year, every two years, you're like, oh, just another 25 here and there. Why can't we figure out? And I gave an example of how this was possible by massively getting out of a big chunk of what we do in stormwater. How can't we reprioritize to make all this stuff happen? Why do we have to raise taxes? I I just think it's so nominal that it's that it's not even a serious. You know, I get it. There, conservative principles. There's a, a line in the sand. You say no tax increases and I'm not I'm not um, trying to make light of that but I, I do th- I mean you and I've gone out and each had one cocktail and it's cost more than my tax increase is going to be so I just don't see that as a serious if we want to make strides on things like affordable housing on things like compensating our police officers on things like safety for pedestrians and cyclists if, if I can't cut out one round at the at the bar for you and I to have a cocktail or or one lunch that that you and I go But out why out. can't we cut out, I mean, 9.8 million, you can turn off the lights and trip over that around here, I'm sure. How could we not find that in, in existing processes? I just don't think we can continue to provide better service to our employees at the city and our citizens of this city and expect that we're not going to have to generate We finally found revenue. a true R&D moment here for well, you and I, which is yeah, I like, don't think you, you we wanted, have to do everything that we do. You wanted us to do something significant. For, for our first responders, I did too. Yes. Uh, but this was something you hung your hat on. And but I me, also wanted to do something significant in where we cut and what we no longer do of equal well, or greater magnitude. Maybe and, and give and our did, folks some money back. We a lot of stuff, I think. And it, we'll see what that is. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of people in our community want to see us do right by our first responders. And so if, if people in this community aren't willing to, to put out another $2 a month, you and I included, to do those things for our first responders, to do those things for the people that need the most in this community, then I, I don't have any sympathy for that. At the end of the day, we all invest in this community. We all want this community to succeed, and it's, it's good for everybody. And, and if that means 2 or $3 more a month for me, 
I'm happy to pay it. Yeah, I, I guess I'd just leave it with, I, I have a lot of really deep thinking to do on that because it goes against a really core principle of mine. But I will say, Marcus did a masterful job in his in his presentation of this budget. Right, for either Again, you're love to or the hate. wants of 12 people. Yeah, That's not, not easy. easy. Not easy. So, all right. One other thing we'll, we'll talk about that came out in a memo to council on Thursday that you and I were, were pretty excited about. And um, I guess this is the first that the public's hearing of it because neither of us even posted or, or really told much of anybody about it yet yeah. outside of this building. Um, but Mayor Vilisles has uh, reinstated the Intergovernmental Relations Committee of the City Council. This is a committee that had existed uh, previously, um, had gone away, now been brought back. And I think there had been some thought uh, amongst council members that it was something that was needed. I think our meeting with our legislative delegation last Monday maybe underscored that, that there wasn't enough of a kind of consistent ongoing dialogue between us here in Charlotte and the folks that represent us in Raleigh and their colleagues. And you uh, and I have showed, I think, some good leadership in one, crossing partisan lines, and two, reaching out and having conversations with our state representatives, with our uh, federal representatives. So um, she uh, made a, a power decision to announce that you and I would actually co-chair. I think so item one is you and I are co-chairing this very important uh, new committee so that's R&D back. the QC has now manifested itself Bam. in real life as a committee. And we've got, like all committees, three committee members where we've got um, Phipps, who chairs budget, he chairs, uh, what, TAP, transportation and planning, um, and then uh, Smudgy, Mitchell. Smudgy Mitchell chairs ED, so two powerhouses there. And, and for the first time, the I think maybe ever, Mayor Vi Lyles is going to be a sitting member of this committee. And I think that goes into the point that this has been a topic of of great importance to her, making sure that our relations are taken to the next level with some of our other uh, partners in government. So uh, I'm really excited to be able to co-lead this with you. Yeah, there's a couple of things that are, I don't know if they're unprecedented, but they're they're certainly unusual. And, um, and in this case, I think they both make sense. One, you mentioned the mayor actually being a member of this committee. She is not a member, you folks listening might not know, the mayor's not a member of any of the committees. So her being a member of this committee is unusual, but I do think it, it lends more credibility to the work we're gonna do. I think it gives us more clout when we walk into the room um, with those leaders that this committee is legit, that it, it, it has the ability, it has the power and authorization to, to represent the city uh, and to engage with those folks at different levels of other elected office. Um, and then the co-chair thing is, again, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's certainly unusual. I've never seen it. And I think it makes a lot of sense because we, we're dealing with, um, you know, when we talk about county commission and school board, those are heavily Democratic elected bodies here. When we talk about the General Assembly and the current um, Congress, those are heavily Republican right now. And, and that could all flip over and do a 180 Five years from now. But I think the good point is neither, but with both of us combined and all of those bodies, I'd say there probably isn't a single person in any of our delegations or locally on those bodies that at least one of us doesn't have some type of relationship with. Yeah. And I think that's why the mayor made the decision she made. But I, I think too, that it, it demonstrates a willingness for there to be, um, that, that Charlotte wants to engage with these folks again. I think, you know, there has obviously some, um, obviously some, that's what I'm looking for. History. There's here. there's some there's some painful history be- <laughs> yeah. between um, Charlotte and particularly our General Assembly in Raleigh, and I think that it it it's kind of a, a breath of fresh air. Two new people that don't have that baggage, maybe um, that didn't go through those hard times in terms of, of that strain on the relationship, and can come in 
as, as fresh faces. Um, and I think it demonstrates that the mayor is, is kind of putting her money where her mouth is saying, we want to engage with other elected bodies, we want to engage with, with the other party. We want to do what's best, not only for Charlotte, but for North and Carolina. And be action-oriented. Yeah. You know, 30, 60, 90 days. What are we going to achieve? Our first focus, other than just relationship building, is the short session. Really monitoring that. But maybe if there's something to be achieved in there, we, we, we look towards that and try to facilitate. But I think one of the things I really want to do, and I know you do as well, is we always go and ask for stuff. Or we don't ask for things and we just say we're here. What, what can we do to help support things they want to accomplish that are mutually beneficial for, you know, the city? Yeah, it's got to be all of our relationships with other elected bodies have to be reciprocal or we'll quickly wear out our welcome. Yeah. So I, I think um, and in our second segment, we're going to be with our Congresswoman Adams, uh, who represents three quarters of Mecklenburg County. And I think, you know, with folks like her. Your friends with Congressman Pittenger. I think with people like that, when we can say not only here's what we really hope you can help us do, but tell us what we can help you do, I think that goes a long way to fostering and maintaining and strengthening those relationships. Um, and again, it you know it, it does Charlotte no favors if your local elected officials don't have good relationships at the state level and at the federal level, regardless of whether you agree with all the policies um, that are being made at any of those levels. The relationships have to be there because they may, they control a lot of the purse strings. They control a lot of the decision making, um, and and we've just got to foster and, and strengthen those relationships. I'm looking forward to doing that with you. What do you and, think about my new haircut? Uh, didn't even notice it. I just we it, talked about it in the last episode. I got it done, man. Finally. Well, just I'll, I'll say it looks good. I don't know. I follow through with my commitments. Is all I'm trying to say. Braxton did something different with his hair. He did. Yeah, we can't figure, yeah, out we can't it, figure it out. So listen. Uh, Big, big uh, episode, big segment coming up in the next segment. So our first congressional. Intergovernmental relations. Yeah. Already we, starting with a bang. Uh, we have got our first friend of the pod from the United States Congress now. Uh, earlier this morning, we had a nice long conversation with Congresswoman Alma Adams. and Doctor, so doctor, doctor, doctor. Yes. She, she has four doctors. We'll talk more about that with her right after this break. Come on, Spanish show we are breaking a new barrier on r&d in the qc uh, it took us 18 episodes but we have got our first member of the united states congress in Tarek's office joining us for r&d in the qc so we'd like to welcome congresswoman dr alma adams that's dr 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 adams we found out she just added a fourth doctor this weekend so welcome to the show Thank congresswoman you. adams good to be here good to be here now you are a PhD, but now you said this weekend you got your third honorary doctorate. Is that I, right? I did from um, Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. And I was out there. They had about 500 students to graduate. They have a new president who was recently installed who has North Carolina roots. Uh, Dr. Allen was a provost at Winston-Salem State University. Go Rams. At, right, yeah. So she's there now doing a great job, and I got a chance to meet not only students, but faculty and uh, to give the charge to the class. I was the commencement speaker. Well, some of the best people come from Winston-Salem, so I like her already. And some of the worst. Yeah. Oh, okay. (laughs) Congresswoman, we are very excited to have you. Both of us are very excited, but 
One of us in particular is very excited, and I know this because he started texting me at 4 a.m. this morning about, oh, well, we could ask this question, and oh, so Larkin is super excited. My co-host, my co-host here is a bit of a wild card, so I wanted to make sure he stayed on track. When, 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 okay. when I hadn't responded by like 6 a.m., he started then reaching out to my wife, asking what was going <laughs> that on, was at 8 and where was I? And it's 9 a.m. <laughs> right now, so... Um, <laughs> Tark's usually pretty quick on the return test. Yes, true. All right, we've got a couple things we want to cover with you, so we'll dive into it. Some folks might not know, particularly in Charlotte, um, that you started off where, where Tark and our, are now at local elected office. So you were on the Greensboro School Board and then on Greensboro City Council back in the 80s, I believe. Mm-hmm. From that perspective of serving in municipal offices, Tark and I begin our service in municipal office. What advice do you have for us for the work in front of us and, and what you learned from those days of your political career? Well, having had the opportunity to serve at uh, in local government, then in state government, now to go to Congress, I think it, that has given me a real good base and understanding of uh, what it takes. Local government, I mean, you really meet, meet the people right where they are. Uh, I enjoyed my uh, time on the Greensboro City Council and on the school board because I got to see people every day. Of course, in Washington, you don't get to see those folks every day although some of them come in. So I would say you need to learn as much as you can. Try to focus on um, one or two areas uh, of interest and really work to, toward perfecting those. For me, uh, my community was um, uh, infested with uh, boarded up housing and all of that. We needed neighborhood revitalization. So those are the things in terms of a council uh, person that I that I focused on to clean up the neighborhood, uh, get those... Um, uh, boards off of these properties, which meant that when I went to state government, we had to change some of the some of the loopholes in the law, which allowed you to keep your property boarded up, and it didn't give you any time certain. Uh, but so it, it, you know, it's a local government is where the rubber meets the road, and uh, for me, you know, getting an opportunity to have these um, table talks with citizens, and they could, you could pretty much do it every day, was was I think really an asset. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting that you um, that that you started. I th- I always view and I hear this feedback a lot. Folks who are you know in the highest office who who started really at the closest place to the constituents almost have a different view, right? Of of kind of how you know their roles now impact others. So uh, uh, very much appreciate your history there. Did you at that time have any? Um, uh, were there? We're finding, and I like your guidance a lot, which is, you know, there's a thousand things you can focus on. Pick a couple and make a big difference there. Did you have some in those areas that you had chosen that required partnership in different bodies, like in our equivalent of county commission, you already said at the state level. And how did you, what was your kind of, you know, methodology for going about doing that? Well, I think, first of all, you've got to know who represents you, um, whether it's at the local level or the state level or the federal level, because there you can have, you know, develop those partnerships. One of the things, and of course, we were uh, f- functioning as you as we do here in Charlotte with a district system, and then you had at-large members as well. Um, but it, it's really wonderful when you can pick up the phone and um, call your colleague at the at the state level and say, "Look, we're, you know, this is going on." So how can you help me? And or here's how I can help you. Or just to kind of give information. You know, sometimes we don't get the information before the citizens do. I mean, mm-hmm. I find that that you know, folks call me all the time. Well, 
uh, I need you to, to vote like this, or I need you to look at this. And I said, well, gee, I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's, that's possible because there's so many things that are going on. And when you have these citizen groups, I think the best advocates really are, are citizens' advocates because they're, they're close to the community, they stay on top of things, and I ask them to make sure, don't assume that I know what you know. Yeah. Make sure you, you know, if you see something, say something, know something, let's talk about it. That's it. So uh, our second question, pre-scripted by Larkin at 4 a.m. this morning, um, is, um, uh, is a good segue there because it's not just cross-body. It's also cross-party, bipartisanship. And that's something that while Larkin and I will never bend on our principles and our beliefs, we believe that professional dialogue and partnership is really important. And I think because of that approach, um, this is breaking news right now, Mayor Vi Lyles has brought back this Intergovernmental Relations Committee. It had existed for a long time and then went away. And she's actually appointed both of us chair. We talked about it earlier in this episode um, about what that means and how it's formed. But I guess the question to you is, if our focus really is going to be twofold, one on the North Carolina General Assembly and how we can work with them in both the short session and long session coming up, but two, working with you guys at, at the federal level, and I know we were in your office not but a couple weeks yeah. ago, um, kind of showing some of our legislative agenda items and talking through things. But I guess generically, you know, what guidance would you give us as we really, you know, look to 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 chart a new path on how we can partner, not just across party lines, but across governmental lines, all the way up to you? Well, I think partnerships are probably the best way to get things done. Actually, I mean, that has been uh, at least uh, some of the success that I've had. Um, at Congress, you know, going in as a freshman, as they say, um, um, having that local and state uh, background uh, really helped me to kind of jump in and to kind of know where to jump in. But I think that, you know, we, we can learn from uh, the, the city council. We, we, we learn, like, what, what are your needs really? You know, what are you really talking about? And then how can we uh, marry those with what we're doing. For example, let's take transportation. Mm. You know, um, you, you all talked about the support that you need for transportation. We, we've got um, opportunities in Congress through the Tiger yeah. uh, grants and, and all those other things that, and, and, and uh, actually we put more money into the pro programs, I'm talking about the federal government, than what the uh, city of Charlotte asked for. So that's always a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we, that we do a lot of um, with local government, with, with our school system, uh, with our universities here. Uh, when they apply for grants, they let us know. We submit letters of support. Um, the, the, when, when those um, applications are reviewed and they get the funding, uh, they let us know first and we feed that into the community. So I think there are plenty of opportunities but we have to know what it is you, you need and what you want, then we need to then, then what I do is have my staff seek out uh, what we have available that, that can be useful to you. And then, you know, everything kind of works for the good of everyone. Just one follow-up question on that before I toss it back to Larkin. What is the right le amount of hearing from us and seeing from us where it's not too much, it's also not too little, and like where are they? Is it, I mean, do you want to, physically see from us periodically and then have updates like what in your mind 
How can we be most effective to you in how we give you information, tell you what's going on in this camp so that you have it, but not overwhelm you because I'm sure you're crazy busy? Well, my priorities typically, uh, you know, I have people coming up to see me from North Carolina all the time. My priorities, first of all, is Mecklenburg County, Mm. Charlotte, and the the cities that we represent connected there. Um, I don't think I can get too much. Um, if, if, it, if it's comfortable for you, then, you know, we've got the staff who will uh, handle that and who will uh, keep me um, uh, up to date on what I need to know. What I'd ask is that you just point out, point to those things that are most key, uh, those things that you consider to be priorities. I mean, you might have five or six things and you all had several things. So you put them in priority order. Mm. We talk about them that way and I think work uh, toward, um, you know, meaningful results in in, in that way. That is really important. The other thing that we can do is to reach out to uh, other members. We have 13 members uh, that represent North Carolina. And so they should all be interested in what's going on in Charlotte, even though that may not be their district. uh, But, you know, we still have to work together. And we do. Uh, and we have to. There are many bills, for example, that we consider to be local. In state government, you have local bills and you need the support of the entire delegation. We have the same process uh, in Congress. It's good advice. Well, and we've, we've talked some about that, too, and I think that's part of what Tark and I want to try to drive home in this bipartisan committee that the mayor has, has recreated, is that what's good for one part of North Carolina is good for all parts of North Carolina, and, and we can't see see the way that dollars are allocated as being uh, a zero-sum game because if it's if, if we're helping rural North Carolina, that helps Charlotte. And if we're helping Charlotte, that helps rural North Carolina and, and the state as a whole. So we, we definitely want to come in with that mindset. You, you talked about prioritizing uh, in terms of the city's legislative agenda. What uh, most of our listeners will be hearing this on Election Day, Tuesday, uh, and so they'll be out, and, and you'll be getting the Democratic nomination tomorrow. I feel quite certain if you weren't already going to get it, we're going to launch you over the, the This podcast is probably going to be the, the big factor. I, I'm seeing head nods around I, I the think room. You yes. had, I think you yes. probably had it pretty, pretty, pretty well in the bag, but this is going to assure that victory. Um, for your next term, which will be your third full term in the Congress, what's your priority? What was the one or two things that yeah. you'd like to... Um, what would be your big wins that you're looking for? Well, I, I think we've got to um, really um, create greater opportunities for our city here and our county to to uh, provide the kind of housing, affordable housing that we need for our city. It is just so unfortunate that we have hundreds of thousands of people who still don't have decent, affordable uh, places to live. It's unfortunate that we have so many homeless people, families. Uh, that kind of thing. Now, when I first started, so housing is an issue. I have uh, I have four H's: housing and and uh, homelessness, um, higher education. Um, I also uh, hunger. Hunger is a big big issue for me. I started the Adams Hunger Initiative shortly after uh, uh, getting sworn in Congress. Uh, we have 162,000 people who uh, are food insecure mm. in our county. Just in, Mecca, just in Mecklenburg That's County, right. yeah. In this 12th district. Uh, about 55,000 of those are children who go to bed every night not knowing that they're going to eat. So that leads me to uh, at least make some comments about the farm bill uh, that uh, will be 
we pa it passed out of the committee. I sit on the farm on the um, on the uh, agriculture committee and the subcommittee on nutrition. And that farm bill is the first farm bill that we've had to come out of committee that is not bipartisan. Now, one of the things that's in that bill that really gives me some concern uh, is the changes that they want to make to SNAP. Mm. Uh, SNAP is a supplemental nutrition program uh, that's been around for a number of years to really help people who need that lift up, who can't, uh, who work hard every day, actually. A lot of SNAP recipients, uh, there are 55,000 of them in our county right now, in, in, in Mecklenburg County. And uh, the majority of those folks work every day, but they work um, minimum wage jobs. Many of them work two and three jobs, uh, and they're still trying to put food on the table. You would be surprised uh, to know that folks go to work every day and come home, or before they get home, they stop at the food banks because they can't afford, you know, the money runs out before the month runs out mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So so those are the things. I, I think, um, so housing would be first. We've got to get people off the street. We've got to do um, something to to get this economic situation straight. So that we need to have a, min a living wage. Um, so we're going to have to look at how we can uh, bring more jobs into our community, jobs that pay good wages, that have good benefits. Um, and you know all those things work together. When you talk about people live in poverty, children live in poverty because their parents do. The parents are the caregivers for the kids, and so uh, if you take SNAP away from the parents, and what they're proposing is a work requirement. Everybody, you know, I've worked ever since I was 13 years old, and I'm not opposed to that. But I think we have to look at all the other things that contribute. Do you have transportation? Are you living in an area where there is no public transportation? You don't have a car. Do you have um, someone to take care of your children? All of those things are really important as you look at trying to get people back to work. But we do have a skills gap, and there are jobs out here. Just uh, last week, uh, Larkin, you all may, may you, you, I don't know if you um, knew about it, but we had a career fair, mm -hmm. and we had about 50 employers. We were at the Ramesses uh, Temple, and this was a congressional project that we do um, every year. And so those folks came, and we had folks who were looking for jobs. So you got to uh, marry those folks together. And uh, I told them, look, this is not a photo op. We want you to hire some people. I went to every table there, and probably 99% of the folks said they were looking for workers. And we had workers or people who wanted to work to come in. So I think we, we can do more of those kinds of partnerships. Yeah, I, I, and, and coming from somebody who grew up an upper mobility story who relied as a family on programs like SNAP and food stamps and know what it's like to get towards the end of the month and not have the food, to, to, to understand the affordable housing. You can't, if your goal is upward mobility, you have to have good programs in place. But on the flip side, having come through that upward mobility trajectory myself, I, I strongly believe that those are tools. They are not Right. by themselves a single thing because when you look at them by themselves and you roll out one program on housing or one program on SNAP or one program on workforce training and upskilling, they all work in conjunction with one another to enable that American dream of upward mobility. And when we only look at one at a time, we end up creating a program that people are like, okay, I got it. Well, I still need it because what do I do now? And that was the situation my mom was in. 
that was the situation I was in for a while. And luckily I was surrounded by a bunch of folks who showed me different parts that were, were possible. So, I mean, I, the one thing I know we're working hard on affordable housing, but we're also working hard to make sure that it's all about upward mobility. Absolutely. It's not about affordable housing. It's yeah. about upward mobility. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we need you on the committee. <laughs> she's getting a promotion already. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's going to help us get some honorary doctorates. Now she's going to put you on Damn. the congressional committee. Damn. It's a big day today. Big day. Big day. So, in the spirit of our show, which kind of seeks to have constructive and, and respectful bipartisan dialogue, um, here's your opportunity. I won't say favorite because I, I, you know, I don't want whoever's left out to, to be upset, but an opportunity for you to give a, a positive shout out to someone of from the Republican Party that you work with in the United States House that you've been able to to make some kind of joint efforts and um, and see them bear fruit. Let me, let me mention a couple of gentlemen. Um, Strong, multiple <laughs> across right. the aisle. That's great. Well, first of all, uh, when I uh, went to Congress, because all of you know I'm a graduate of, of an HBCU. I taught on an HB, uh, North Carolina A&T. Uh, I taught on an HBCU Aggie campus, Aggie Pride. Mm-hmm. I taught on an mm-hmm. HBCU campus, Bennett College in Greensboro, for 40 years. So I have HBCU running through my blood because they took me in, prepared me, uh, invested in me, got me to where uh, I, I could get out, get my degree, go on to the Ohio State University uh, to get my Ph.D. only because of the North Carolina A&T. So I'm, I'm just HBCU. That's, 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 that's what I've been about. So in the Congress, we started the first bipartisan HBCU Congressional Caucus. And I, I looked around to see who, and I know that, you know, if you can do things across the aisle, you're going to be more successful. I taught art for 40 years, but I can count. I know if you're going to try to get something through, you got to have the numbers. So I looked around, and uh, I found uh, Congressman Bradley Byrne from Alabama, who um, uh, was a former community college president. He is my co-chair of the bipartisan HBCU caucus, we now have 76 members. It is bicameral, so mm. we have senators to both North Carolina senators are part. Uh, and um, so we, w- there were three purposes actually. First of all, to create um, uh, national dialogue around HBCUs, what they do, uh, what they have meant to our country, to our communities, uh, and the impact that they're having on young people. Uh, then to educate the Congress. A lot of folks in Congress, they don't know what those letters mean. HBCU, uh, historically black colleges and universities. And then finally to create uh, bipartisan legislation that would impact these students who mo- and these schools. Our schools, HBCUs are, and we have several. North Carolina has more. Bradley Byrne and I fuss about who has more, mm. North, but North Carolina does. Uh, and so we, we um, Ours are at in least our better area, you've theirs. got Livingstone, you've got Johnson C. Smith University, then you go on up, you've got, you've got uh, A&T, you go up, you've got North Carolina Central and so forth. So we have 11, actually. Uh, and so uh, the caucus uh, did look at some ways to really try to help students. We did get, um, as a result of our work and also the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, we were able to um, get uh, some increased funding uh, in the omnibus uh, bill, and I'm proud about that. One of the other eight, one of the other bipartisan things I want to mention is the bipartisan HBCU internship program mm-hmm. that uh, I do with my colleague uh, from Greensboro, Mark Walker. Now, um, Congressman Walker brings a student 
from his HBCU, which used to be my HBCU that I represented, and that's North Carolina A&T. And I tell him I'm watching him because, you know, that's my school and he better do right. <laughs> but, uh, so, so he brings a student to the Hill um, from A&T. I bring a student to the Hill from Johnson C. Smith. The, the, my student begins their four, four weeks with me in my office. His students begin their four weeks in his office. Then they rotate. Uh, his student comes to my office for four weeks. My student goes there. Uh, and two purposes there. First of all, so that these young people uh, can see if there are any differences in terms of how we operate. But then to uh, really uh, take note of the similarities and to understand what we do. We all working for citizens uh, that we represent. So how do you pick who wins of the two, well, of the there's two an students? Applica- there's an application. No, no, once they're picked. It between you and between, the between the two. Once they're there, I mean, there's got to be a winner, right? Uh, well, they're both winners. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, the winning, uh, the winning part of this is that we, we don't think that there's enough diversity. I certainly don't. Many of my colleagues don't um, b- believe that there's enough diversity on the Hill. Mm. And in terms of uh, positions and offices, high-level positions, management positions, we had a young lady who began with us uh, who actually was employed recently by Congressman uh, Meeks of New York. So that's the goal, you know, to get them placed, uh, that kind of thing, so that they get that experience, they can go in. And, and they can they can get a job. So we're proud of that program. And we each put in some money uh, to, you know, it's expensive to, to live in Washington. So they're, they're there for eight weeks, and so we help to offset uh, those expenses for those students. That's something that I think many of other of my colleagues, and some of them have talked about wanting to do it, because I think it opens up opportunity and so forth. Uh, we're also looking at the... Um, diversity and inclusion. And we have a a program that we started a few weeks ago, about maybe a month ago, uh, we did the HBCU uh, STEAM Day uh, uh, on the Hill. And we call it STEAM because, you know, we put the arts in there. Uh, But uh, basically we had uh, many of uh, businesses, tech companies to come in and take that challenge. Yes. How are you inclusive? Are you, is it on your board? Are you hiring? People? Is that the one our, our our colleague uh, Councilman Winston came up for? Or was that something else? Uh, that was H. Uh, the uh, that was the um, HB. That was the HBCU. Um, okay, that, I thought that was the same because yeah, I knew Google yeah. and you had some other but, folks but there. But we have, um, as a matter of fact, most recently, um, Blue Cross and Blue Shield has mm. taken the diverse taken the pledge. Nice, so, you know. Again, it's about working together. So you said a couple you like. Uh, name a few you hate. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. <laughs> He's kidding. And this is why I had to. This is why I had to spend extra prep time. That's why he called morning. me at four. <laughs> um, I'm pretty good. I do think people. I, I do think our listeners will be refreshed to hear. I mean, uh, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback in terms of our efforts to try to make local politics more bipartisan and, and more effective. I think people and will, some negative feedback. Too. Well, yeah, but but the positive is outweigh the negative, and I think um, there is a perception to some degree uh, or another that in Washington that kind of bipartisan work doesn't happen. And obviously, you know what we hear most about is where there's conflict. It doesn't. It's not as that sells the it sells the papers. Mm-hmm. It's That's not as good right. of a story to say, "Hey, look what these two uh, folks from different parties in North Carolina, representing North Carolina in our Congress, have done." to work together and to give people that social capital and experience and opportunity. So um, 
you know, that's not as exciting a news story. It's not going to get as many clicks, so it oftentimes doesn't get written. Yeah. So I appreciate it. You know, you. I sit on small business, and just about every bill that we've uh, passed out of there has been a bipartisan bill. And I've had two or three in there. The score, uh, I had a bill for veterans that would uh, help our veterans who are beginning a small business. Nice. Uh, to get uh, some support. I just uh, uh, had a bill... Um, uh, that we filed, I'm, I'm still trying to get get signatures on it, that would help with uh, some of these um, uh, college, uh, these loans uh, for people who are in business, women, for example, who've been in business three, four years. Uh, we can get uh, some uh, release for 20% if they uh, have, have been in business and they're going to hire people and put uh, jobs out that are at least $30,000 and uh, then uh, there's going to be... Um, uh, some reduction in terms of your, your student loan. Because when you're bogged down like that, then you can't put funding into your business if you've got to pay those students. Student loan debt has just risen uh, 400%, 500%, and that's just really too mm-hmm. much. But I started uh, when I went to the Congress um, with a bipartisan kind of feel, and uh, I have a great story I always like to tell. Well, tell it. Oh, By all means. <laughs> well, listen, uh, you know, it's a big place there. Um, trying to get around the building is can, can be very difficult, and so I have a staffer who, you know, takes me from uh, they they staff me in different meetings, and uh, I also was a little disappointed that I couldn't wear my hat on the floor of the house because mm. I wore it in the general assembly. You know, it was no problem, but that's some antiquated rule, probably some some sexist rule to you know you go back back to 1800s <laughs> uh, but anyway so the i no decided let me find the place that i could take my hat off get my hair combed and everything uh so getting around the capital uh i found the um, cloakroom uh and um you know they you can go in there you can get a snack and it's right off of the house floor so uh, some some of us go in and sit and wait for the votes to be called and then we go in so i told my staffer uh, pick me up at the cloakroom, you know, so I can get to my next meeting. And so one day uh, he texted me and he said, Congresswoman, I am outside the cloakroom and I don't see you. Uh-oh. Now, I had been in the cloakroom when I got there because I kind of knew how to get there. And I was trying to meet people and I was there for like three weeks. And, you know, if you have your little pen on, you know it's a member of Congress. And so they would come over, oh, so you're the new member from North Carolina. And I said, yeah, and they were really, you know, because I knew they were members because they had pen on. So um, the staffer, when he texted me that day and asked me, um, uh, he said, I don't see you. I'm outside the cloakroom. I opened the door to the cloakroom, and I didn't see him in the hallway. So the two ladies in there who helped prepare sandwiches and things looked at me, and they said, well, uh, can we help you with something? You look puzzled. And I said, well, my staffer says he's outside the cloakroom. I don't see him. And uh, she leaned down to me and said, uh, Congresswoman, he's probably outside the Democrat cloakroom. Uh. So, <laughs> so for three weeks, right, guess where I was? In the Republican cloakroom. Oh. Oh. Everybody was speaking to me, and they were saying, oh, so you yeah. remember from North Carolina. I don't know what they said when they got out of my sight. They probably said, she's lost. <laughs> but that's part of, you know, I mean, and so I found, finally found the... But you, that, st- you just continued to go to the Republican. You built some relationships. Well, that's uh, where I go when I need to, you know, when I need to find some of my Republicans yes. over there that I need them to help me. I did, that was a great twist yeah. in the story. I thought yeah. the story was going to be like, the cloakroom was also some shady nightclub in D.C. 
see it. He's like, I'm outside. No, right, 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 right. <laughs> Look, it's the hangout place before votes are called, typically. Mm. And you can go there and get a grilled sandwich or something like that. But, you know, I was there. The, and everybody was nice. Now, I tell you, Republicans, they were, they were nice to me. They, I'm sure they were shaking their heads after they Laughing a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, what's up with her? She's lost <laughs> hanging around here. That's awesome. All right, before we let yeah. you go, I have a, I had a fun little game idea here. There was some game show. I don't know if it's Newlyweds or something where you try to match up your answer with your partner's answer. And so I think you're going to match answers with me here. I, I've folded it on a piece of paper here to... Tuesday is the primary, and most of our listeners are going to be listening on Tuesday. Obviously, it's very important that they go vote. Most of the local elections here are going to be decided in the primary, not in the general. So if I said you could use four words and four words only to tell our listeners what you want them to do during this primary tomorrow, what would that be? And I've written what I think your answer is going to be there, but you tell me. It's under here. It's under there. Wow. This it, is it, now, the first four, word starts four. with a T. If we were talking about election... This is why we don't let Larkin plan ahead of time. I thought this was going to go well. (laughs) It's going great so far. Please continue. This is one of my favorite sayings of yours that you use a lot at the end of a speech. listen, I can tell you, we're going to turn this mother out. (laughs) (laughs) Flip flip over that piece of paper. Uh-huh. Turn this mother out. Oh, man. That's great. I knew we'd get there. I knew we'd get there. It's a little harder than that. You have never put an ounce... Close to this amount of preparation into any other podcast we've done, my friend. Well, I mean, Pod Save America, we're coming for you. We've got Congress people coming in the studio now. so Impressive. We have reached a new level of podcast fame yes. and legitimacy, I think. I agree. Uh, and I've never seen you geek out this hard before. This is great, man. Well, we need to get some of your Republican <laughs> colleagues in here so Tarek can be equally excited and nervous yeah. about what I might ask them. That's true. Right. That's true. Okay. Well, it's been wonderful, I tell you. And I think it's a great idea, what you're doing. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank we, you for all the work you do. We for need to do more of that. This we county will. and this state. All right. Well, we so much thank you for being here. We really enjoyed the time. Good luck tomorrow on Election Day. And uh, last words for the folks? Anything? Please vote. Please vote. Somebody's going to make a decision for and about you most times without you. So either you need to do what I've done and these gentlemen here run for office and help make those decisions on the inside, or you need to be able to control those of us who make those decisions on your behalf. So true. Great words. I think we'll let it end there. Ladies and gentlemen, Congresswoman, doctor, 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 doctor. And now for Into the Pod. Alma Adams. You're listening to R&D in the QC with Tariq Bakari and Mark Eggleston.